Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. We're so excited to have Sabina Nawaz joining us today. Welcome, Sabina. Thank you, Laura. So glad you're here with us. So we love to start these conversations out with just learning more about your career. So could you tell us about your career and maybe even before your career? Because I know that you've had just a really interesting life and journey and maybe even throw in there your amazing TED Talk that you did. (laughs) How long did we have for this Exactly. (laughs) Mm, I was born in Calcutta, India, and grew up there for the first 19 plus years of my life, and then got on an airplane for the very first time in my life to come to the United States. The first thing I did when I entered the United States is throw up, literally, because they announced welcome to Boston Logan Airport, and I was so plane sick and so nervous, I'm sure, that I threw up. And so as I'm waiting for my connecting flight from Logan to Hartford, Connecticut, because I was going to go to Smith College in Massachusetts for my bachelor's, I I thought, oh, gosh, I feel gross. And I asked somebody, is there some water somewhere here just to rinse off my mouth and feel human again? And they said, oh, it's right there. And I looked right there and I had no idea what they were pointing to because I had no idea what water coolers look like in the U.S. Wow. So that's how I started here with a big cultural initiation to a very different world coming with two suitcases and $750. And yes, my TEDx talk on YouTube shares more details about that part of my life. The reason I came to the U.S. transferring as a junior to Smith College was to study computer science and electronics. Because when in India, we sit for a statewide entrance exam for medicine and engineering. And in those days, out of 20,000 students, the first 20 or so get to study computer science. Well, I'm smart, but I wasn't that smart. So my rank was 800 and something out of 20,000. And then you get assigned these disciplines that are in a hierarchy. So I was assigned architecture. While I loved drawing and painting, I could not imagine my life in 3D design. Not my thing, not my jam. And I could just smell the air conditioning coming out of the computer lab as these, as these other people would go into the exclusive domain there with their stack of programming cards. That's how old I am. And, uh, and so I came to study that, loved it, did my graduate master's degree at University of Massachusetts. And Microsoft was the first one to call me for a job interview and then hire me. And when Microsoft called me, I had no idea who Microsoft was. I had to look it up and find out about William H. Gates III. And and I thought, well, I've never been to Seattle. This is a free trip. Why? Might as well. I had no intention of moving to the West Coast, but I fell in love with my third interview. Worked in software development for over nine years rising up the ranks, managing groups, working on major products, as well as version zero products that went nowhere. 
For example, we worked on the very first sound in computers. And, but the way we did it was all wrong and others learned from that. We, I also worked on Windows and MSN and Internet Explorer and other things that were household names. And after that, after about nine plus years, I switched careers. And that's where I met you, Laura, of course, is when I started heading up the company's executive leadership employee development programs and also working very closely with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer on the company's succession planning process, their executive retreats, and so on. I left Microsoft. Now I work one-on-one with CEOs across the globe, with C-teams, do leadership training, speak at keynotes, write for Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, and Forbes, and so on. And I'm working on my first book. I guess I should have started with my shortcut bio, which is I went from being a computer geek to a leadership geek. So there you have it. That is Absolutely. A fascinating story, Sabina. Thank you so much for sharing that. And can you talk a little bit about your book that you're working on now? What are some of the topics that you feel are really important for CEOs and other executives to to learn about? Well, the book actually comes from my clients. It is based on over 10,000 pages of notes that come from an interview-based 360 process that I do. Actually, Laura and I had uh, planted the seeds of this together many, many, I don't know how many years it's been, Laura. Just many. I know. I get decades. Lost (laughs) count. I basically capture verbatim the feedback. So I will interview, say, a dozen plus people if I were coaching you. And I capture everything they say. So then I've taken that information actually hired somebody else so that to remove some bias, to do a full analysis of that data. What are the top things that people get feedback on? And from there, taking those top things and writing a book that says, this is not about how you get to your next level. And next level could mean anything from executive vice president to CEO of a Fortune 40 company. It could also mean next level of, I've been working at home with my kids and my family for 20 years, and I'm I'm now ready to go back into the workforce. It could be next level of, I'm going to volunteer to chair a steering committee in my church. It could be any of those things. So it's not about how do you get there, but once you've decided you're going to get there or you've gotten there, how do you stay there? And how do you thrive in that so that you don't receive the lashing <laughs> that some of my clients have gotten in their feedback, you have a chance out the gate to head some of those things off at the pass. And a lot of that is about the combination of power and pressure. And we often say power corrupts. I actually don't think power corrupts. I think pressure corrupts. Pressure corrupts because the pressures make us act out in certain ways Power blinds us to that corruption that is happening for us because no one will tell us the truth. And therefore, now we have a deadly cocktail. Wow, that's really fascinating. Well, you know, and you were kind of getting to this when you were talking about thriving, you know, how do we create these places where people can thrive? That's, we focus a lot on this podcast, right? Is on how do you create positive workplaces or positive work? So based on your experience, what are you, 
What do you think are some of the most important aspects that we should be focusing on to create more positive workplaces? The first thing I would say is to focus on the entire spectrum of emotions. Lately, there's been this um, phrase about toxic positivity and some of that as we hit the pandemic. I mean, holy cats. I mean, we've hit like just about so many major crises and probably more coming, even though we don't want to admit to that at this moment because we're all exhausted from it. And early on in the pandemic, I heard many CEOs say, oh, we are resilient. We will get through this. And it started making me want to hurl. I was breaking out in a full body rash going, yes, you're resilient on video as we see you talking from your lakeside villa with your grand piano by your side and a $500 floral arrangement. Of course, you're resilient. That's easy. What about the woman who's working from home now and cannot escape her physically abusive husband and has two kids and an aging parent? So what about acknowledging where we are and honoring the emotions that we have? I mean, it's even interesting how we say positive emotions and negative emotions as though it's not okay to experience uh, mad, sad, and afraid. Only glad is allowed. Yet what do we do when we say we're glad? As Brene Brown says, we get this foreboding joy like, oh, I'm going to jinx it or Laura, you live in Seattle with rain. And when there's a sunny day, we go, well, enjoy it because tomorrow it might rain again. So this this thing about even joy, we kind of are not comfortable just fully expressing and experiencing our emotions. And can it be okay for us to just do that? Because once we can do that, we can then move through it and bring our full selves to work. And put in that effort amid all the pressures, amid all the uncertainties that are taking place in our world today. That is, I think that's so powerful. And I used to do what's called a passion inventory exercise with my entrepreneurship students. And one thing I said is when we think about the word passion, it's such a loaded term. You think of what brings me joy, what brings me happiness. But what I really tried to do is get the students to think about what motivates you. And sometimes it's different emotions that motivate you. It's anger. It's, you know, it's seeing a situation of poverty. It's, you know, these issues that really are what's motivating and and drive you to want to make change and do something different. And so it's really paying attention to understanding like what, what drives you and yeah. and sometimes those emotions aren't always, you know, yeah. you know, the fun stuff. It's it's the stuff that you want to see change. Yes. So I I love that, Tessa. The the my Forbes article that has gotten the most clicks is an article about something like nine steps to ask a mentor for advice or a stranger for advice. And and I wrote that when I was pissed off. I was so tired of complete strangers who would ask me for help in ways that I thought were not okay. Yeah. I mean, I love, I mean, I'm in the job of helping people like you all are, but when they don't respect your time, when they don't offer the basic courtesies, and I was really upset by this one interaction and I just slammed down these nine things. And what do you know? It's something that's been the most successful of the pieces I've written on Forbes. That's amazing. 
So a question I, I had for you was around see what you're hearing from CEOs today. And I'm really curious, what are some of the top challenges the CEOs are facing today in their roles? Well, a huge challenge. I just, in fact, got off a call right before joining this one with the CEO is around actually managing the emotions of your workforce. And for that, of course, managing yourself. We are in such unknown territory and we have no idea how this is going to all play out. There is no light at the end of the tunnel at the moment around when the pressures are going to let up. And so mm, this person was saying that somebody had for a while tried to get something through to them about how much pain and suffering, I guess, or anxiety there was in the troops. And this person wasn't listening in the way that they needed them to. And finally, they wrote them a letter to express that. And I thought that's powerful. And I'm finding this with many of my CEOs, or actually a CTO I was talking to last week, who had been on a forum with fellow CTOs. And she mentioned that they were all saying this, that people are really, really having meltdowns at this point. I mean, our capacity to deal with stuff is really eroded. And and Laura, I know you'd study burnout a lot and all of that. So I think, you know, it's really hard to find motivation, even if we're passionate about something right now, when when there's nothing left in the tank. So that's one big challenge that I am seeing over and over and over again. Uh, Another challenge is on the strategic front. The landscape is so different from a business perspective. You know, the the way, for example, these rolling layoffs are happening because of the ramp up over the pandemic and now the going back to business as usual. But that what what should our business strategy be during this time? And how do we approach it again? Because we don't know how to quite navigate the headwinds that we're facing. And through it all, having to do it in a hybrid fashion which is also here to stay. So we can resist it as much as we want. We can try to mandate getting back to work, but how's it working for you? Not so much, right? And so how do we deal with that as human beings who inherently like to gather at the water cooler now that I know what water coolers look like? (laughs) Those are so good. And they're huge. Each one of those is so huge. And then when you think of the combination of those things, right? It just feels like this so much ambiguity and fear in this system that we're trying to, you know, come every day and do good work at. So let's add, let's talk about another complexity, (laughs) being a woman in a leadership role. I mean, you've had lots of leadership roles and just wonder if there are any lessons you might share with us or just what are some thoughts you might have about that? I have three thoughts. Which will sound very cliched, but let me tell you some stories on them. So one is speak up. Two is be a woman. And three is bring along a woman. Now, what does this all mean? Laura, you've known me for a while, but you didn't know me when I first started my career. And when I first started my career, I would not speak a single word in meeting after meeting after meeting. And yes, I can, because we're on video, I can see the look of shock on your face because right now I do not hesitate to speak up at all. I speak up early often and sometimes say the most provocative thing in a meeting. 
But when I first started, I was silent. I was completely silent and um, didn't also quite formulate a point of view. I would look to other people because I was very cued to extrinsic cues about what are people going to think about me. That makes all the sense in the world. An immigrant, a brown woman, five foot three, amongst a hundred percent men, almost all white men. Of course, I have to survive in this environment and I cannot just get away by saying really provocative things at the age of 24, five, however old I was. So there is a piece about, though, how do you find your voice? And a guy actually helped me with that. One of my bosses, Blake Irving, who later became CEO of GoDaddy. And he said, look at the women you admire. And do you think they got there where they got by being quiet in meetings? Because meetings are where careers are made and broken. So slowly, slowly, I learned to find my voice. I then actually disagreed with my own boss in a meeting, which to me was, oh my gosh, I wish the earth would open up a hole and swallow me up. It was really scary to do. And you know what? This is what happened after that meeting. Exactly nothing. Right? We all know that, but it was so it's about going to the gym of speaking up. Try it, experiment it in little steps is how I got there. And now nobody sometimes people think I'm making this up. It's couldn't be like you're like so out there. Um the be a woman is about four years into my career. I had worked so hard to fit in. And fitting in also meant being one of the guys. I hadn't realized that. I hadn't done it consciously. But I was in a meeting with two of my male colleagues and they said, oh, quickly, before Jane comes in, I want to tell you a joke. And they told me whatever the joke was. And and I went, well, why before Jane comes in? Oh, because Jane's a woman. And I'm like, "Uh, I'm a woman too. Like, what's the difference here? Um, And they're like, oh, you're just one of us. And I realized that I had achieved what I'd set out to achieve, which is to be one of us in all sorts of identities and ways. And yet that's not, that's not my place. I am a woman. I have some unique perspectives that I need to bring to the workplace and stand up for, advocate for and embody. And so that became the first day, three, four years into my career that it took me that long to actually be a woman at work with, with all that that meant, including then being a fierce advocate for my team, which I remember getting into this knockdown drag out fight, well, not literally, in words where my team had worked multiple weekends. They were just really killing themselves. And then there was this major picnic for the company. And my counterpart was like, well, your team's going to have to skip the picnic and do this work. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. So for me, it was a lot about managing the emotions of the people on my team. And I don't know that I would have done that at the beginning. And then the bringing along a woman, here's something I'll say that might be a little provocative for some of you listening to this, is when people say women are women's worst enemies. I think that's bullshit. I think what happens is that there are relatively few women. So when we see something like that, we immediately want to make it a trope. We want to generalize it. Are there women who stab other women in the back? 
Of course, absolutely. Are there men who stab women in the back? Of course, absolutely. Do we say men are women's worst enemies? Though numbers wise, you've probably been stabbed in the back by more men than women just because there are more men in the workplace that we all operate in. So, and most of the women I talk to take on more than their fair share of mentoring other women and bringing them along. So I think it's time to ditch that phrase and actually look for, tell the stories of, and make sure we are, we have those stories to tell of how do we bring other women along. I mean, that was fabulous. And I don't, don't know the current title is of your, your book you're writing now, but be a woman at work is a fantastic title for your next book. <laughs> because I think that is some of the greatest advice that I, you know, our younger women listeners are really, well, all ages really need to hear that advice. But certainly, I think for, for younger people, younger women who are entering the workforce, just bringing them their whole selves to the job is so important. And it's not about necessarily assimilating to the culture that was really probably likely created by male executives because of more men at the top. That's a fact, but, but just the need that our experiences, your experiences of your amazing life bring so much richness to every job you do. So it's just so important. So I, you just really spoke about how you embody, you know, being a woman at work and, and how you've really integrated that into your life, but would love to, to learn a little bit more about some of the emotional regulation, some of the resilient skills. How do you, what are some practices or things that you do to really embody that type of work as well that you might give as through your consultation to CEOs? How do you actually yeah. practice that? Yeah. There are two of them. And one of them is not just for me, but for my for my two boys who are now 20 and almost 18. But when they were, I want to say about six and eight, I started thinking, okay, I work with all these CEOs. What is it that they come to an executive coach for and what gets them into trouble? And how might I inoculate my kids early on in life so they don't have to go to a coach to work on these issues, at least? I mean, there's nothing wrong with going for to a coach getting, you know, job security for us. But what is it? And one of the things I found was this danger of a single story. The more expert we become and the more senior we become, the more we're likely to believe our own single story. And everybody goes, yes, boss, that's true. And we lose the benefit of multiple stories and a broader perspective. So I made up a game called multiple meanings with my kids. And every morning I would when I would take them to school, we would cross this bridge. Sometimes the bridge took 90 seconds. Sometimes it took, well, a couple of times it took 90 minutes. Sometimes it took nine minutes. Our rule was while we were on the bridge, we would play multiple meanings. Multiple meanings was we would, one of us would pick something at random and we would make multiple meanings out of what was going on, taking turns. So there's a guy walking across the bridge in a sleeveless black leather vest with tattoos on his arms. I might say, oh, he just got out of prison. And my older son might say, well, maybe he has a tattoo parlor on the other side and he's advertising his tattoos to come do, get some tattoos. And the younger one might say, it's a sunny day. He actually is a lawyer and he cannot show his tattoos at work. So now he's, he's, he's flaunting it on his day off and so on and so on. And we'd repeat and keep saying multiple stories. So this would build that muscle strength of there's more than one thing 
And it's less likely about you and more about let's get more intelligent about the situation and be more strategic. And this showed up for my kids too. Like after we'd done this for a while and one of them would run in and go, oh, my brother's such a rat bastard. He he stole my Legos. And I'd go, okay, yeah. So one one story is he's a rat bastard. And what are some other meanings you could make of it? Oh, he was building the ship and he didn't have this special piece. And my piece was lying around or, you know, and as soon as he actually, and we know this from brain science, a different part of your brain gets engaged when you start to make multiple stories, but immediately calmed him down. So he could deal with conflict. And guess what? How many of us are challenged by conflict in the workplace? To get to positivity, to get to productive conflict, make multiple meanings. So we've done that in our family, and it's become almost a natural way of speaking. Like, yeah, but it could also be this. Oh, my gosh, I'd never even thought about that. The more righteous we are, the more we're likely to be sticking to a single story. So that's a cue. And the second piece that I will say that I am personally tremendously proud of in my own life. And that is this idea of micro habits. I have an article in Harvard Business Review. It's a com, actually I have two articles, combination of micro habits and something called a yes list. Micro habits is we don't shift. We don't change. It's so hard to change. We don't change by, by going all in and, and going from zero to 60 overnight. If I'm a couch potato today, I'm not going to be running a marathon tomorrow, nor is it advisable. You're likely going to have a cardiac incident before you hit, before you hit mile one. So last year, I'm going through some stressful stuff in my personal life and to manage my stress, I created a self care yes list of these things that I do on a daily basis. I check off yes, 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 or no, or not at the end of the day. It takes me about 20 seconds to do, but it's really motivating to learn. And one of those is various aspects of physical exercise, but specifically running. January 4th of 2022, I was able to run 1.1 mile on the treadmill. I ran every single day and I had a goal of completing 500 miles in the year, even though I could only run 1.1 miles on January 4th of 2022. By the end of the year, I was 60, I think about 16 miles short of my goal, but that didn't matter. What I could do was run a 10K that is about six miles on demand any day and on a daily basis. How did I get to 10K? By starting at 1.1 miles and increasing about 0.2 miles a week initially at a really slow pace. And now for the first time in my life, at the end of June, I hope to run in my first half marathon. And this week, I for my practice training run, I ran 15K. So that would not have happened if I hadn't done it as micro habits. Sabina, that's amazing. That is so amazing. I think I saw that somewhere that you had been running and just so impressive. Yeah, posted on LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I saw it. So just so amazing. Well, I can't believe our time is already up. Thank you so much for joining us, for all of your amazing insights. Is there any la one last thing you want to leave us with or closing remarks? I just say you are enough. Mm -hmm. So much of my life I spent striving and trying to be somebody else. And you know what? Once you just give yourself space to, to look inside, you are enough. 
And that's when you start to thrive instead of strive. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining yes. Sabina. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yes. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Sabina. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon. Thank you.